I think the standard agenda of any piece of entertainment is to be as entertaining as possible. The problem with the movie Infinite Jest is that it's, it's lethally entertaining, meaning it's, watching it is so much more fun than doing anything else. Once somebody's watched it once, they pretty much have the spiritual energies of a moth and want to uh, do nothing more than watch it again and again and again until they die of probably dehydration. The book is meant to seem kind of surreal and outlandish at first and then in sort of a creepy way to seem not all that implausible. I mean, at some point in the next 10 or 15 years, we're going to have virtual reality pornography, which I would just invite you to think about, given the level of, you know, people whose lives are ruined just by addiction to sort of video peep show stores now. This stuff's going to get better and better and better and better, and it's not clear to me that, that we as a culture are, are teaching ourselves or our children, you know, what we're going to say yes and no to. That's the voice of the late writer David Foster Wallace. Wallace is best known for his gargantuan, critically acclaimed novel, Infinite Jest. That book, along with his nonfiction, made him a literary rock star and, in a way, a cultural critic. He became known for his off-the-charts intelligence, his looping referential literary voice, and his refusal to sign off on his role as a kind of celebrity writer. Reports of his struggles with depression became fairly well-known, and in September of 08, he killed himself at his home in Claremont, California. But before all that, when his novel Infinite Jest was just beginning to break big, he went on a road trip with one of our guests today. The setup for the piece was a few days spent hanging out with hot new writer David Foster Wallace for Rolling Stone magazine. Well, the article never ran, but it became the book we're talking about today. Good morning, I'm Veronica Rickert. I'm glad to be with you here on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. Our guest this morning is David Lipsky, the author of Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself, A Road Trip with David Foster Wallace. He's a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine, and his work has appeared in The New York Times, Harper's, and The Best American Short Stories. And we're also delighted to be joined this morning by Amy Wallace-Havens. Amy is the younger sister of the late writer David Foster Wallace, and she'll be here to share her insights and her own memories. And we'd also love to hear from you this morning. Did the writing of David Foster Wallace make a difference to you? And what is your favorite Wallace piece of writing? If you have questions about his life or his work, you can call us at 1-800-642-1234. Or send your email to talk at WPR.org. And Amy Wallace-Havens, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. And David Lipsky, I'm really glad you could be here as well. I'm very happy to. And, and David, we'll start with you. You know, when, when an artist dies young, like David Foster Wallace did, there's often this groundswell of fan activity, a lot of interest in their work. But with David Foster Wallace, this doesn't seem to be trailing off very quickly. What do you think it is that people respond to so strongly about his writing and, and his personality? Well, there's a word that uh, there's a word that David used for how the best writing would sound. He said that it would sound like the reader's brain voice. And I think what was very exciting to people in 1996 when the FNHS came out is that was the first time that a lot of people really saw on the page the way their own, you know, the way their own internal dialogue sounded. It's a very thrilling thing. It's funny. It's sharp. It sees everything. And so you can flatter yourself by saying, ah, that's what's going on inside my mind. And it's, it's just a, whenever that happens with a writer, it's thrilling. And Amy, I, I know that you have emailed me that people are still coming up to you. You said they have tears in their eyes sometimes telling you about your brother and what he meant to you. Could you tell us some of what people are saying to you? Um, you know, 
things that range from um, people sharing their experiences with depression and loneliness and picking up one of David's stories or one of his books and really actually feeling that, that there is a connection out there somewhere. And that tenuous connection could be enough for them to keep going. Um, and it's, it's really um, that sort of comment to me is, is so incredibly moving and it makes me so really so happy for David. That, that would have meant an awful lot to him um, because he did think about loneliness a lot. That was one of the big themes in his writing. And then other people just will come up and, and say, um, I didn't know him, but I, I miss him. And um, it's, it's just it's nice to hear those things. You read about the word loneliness coming up a lot, and it comes up a lot even in your book, David, about the road trip you took. Loneliness comes up, and it, it looms large. What is it do you think it is about loneliness that so interested David Foster Wallace, and what is it that resonates with us about loneliness? Uh, I think it's part of what makes his writing so alive. His idea was that, and it's kind of how life feels, right, is that we walk around with this kind of private, this private experience all the time, which... We sort of were locked in these little, I think he described it as being locked in, a, in sort of a, a one-foot bone box. And, um, and it's very hard to communicate what's inside our brands. And so what David thought writing could do at its best, and one of the things he talks about um, in the book, is that only writing, I mean, you, you know, movies are great fun, you know, pop music is great fun, but really good writing, what it could do is it was the only way to kind of leap over what he called the wall of self and set up a communication between two souls. And that is just... That's something that only writing can do, and really that his writing does better than anybody's. Do you think, Amy, that when you read your brother, I mean, you obviously had a really close, intimate relationship with him. The two of you were very close, and you also read his work, and you knew the literary voice. Did the two sync up? Was the David Foster Wallace that you knew the same that you met on the page? Um, yeah, very much, which is why... It's actually kind of difficult for me to read some of David's stuff now because it is so much David there on the page. Um, it's it's really very startling how much he's able to sound exactly like himself um, no matter what he's writing for, be it nonfiction, be it fiction. Um, that is the way he talked. That was the way his thought process worked. Um, thank God he didn't actually use footnotes in verbal communication. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's, that's David on the page. What was it like growing up with David Foster Wallace? You made a joke again in, in email about how you wished there had been one of these books that there are now. There's one called Understanding David Foster Wallace, yeah. and you wish you'd had that. But what was it like with uh, growing up with someone who became this incredible literary talent and became also known for this towering intellect? Well, thank, thank God when I was a child, I didn't know that he was going to become famous for a towering intellect because <laughs> he was a fairly... Um, pesky older brother, and um, he was a very uh, precocious, smart-mouthed kid and was extremely good at putting me in my place um, and and pushing my buttons. I was sort of David's science experiment um, (laughs) for the first 10 years of my life, I think. Um, But, you know, it was 
I have some very strange, uh, but very good childhood memories. I thought I thought all older brothers were like that, and until I grew up and realized that um, I won some sort of lottery there. And David Lipsky, you probably knew him as well as any other journalist. You spent time on your road trip. What did you think about your time spent with him? Well, he just about. I was just smiling at what what Amy had just said. Um, uh, he just was incredibly charming. It was like there are, there are some writers whose voices are much more performative and, and quite a bit different than the way they actually talk, but, but getting to drive around with him was just like stepping into uh, an essay he was writing kind of live. I mean, there was a, when, he, when he first began writing for the magazine Harper's, which is where he published a lot of his nonfiction, uh, when he visited the city from Illinois, people would brag about having spent time with him because it was just so thrilling. I mean, it just, you know, uh, a friend of mine there said that, that he was using, you know, all six senses at once, and when you were with him, you saw more. And that's what his fiction is exactly like, and that's what his company was like. It was just, um, it, was, it, was like, um, it was like having a much better, more powerful lens put onto your own kind of interpersonal camera. And suddenly you could see everything in this precise, sharp, thrilling, comic detail. Well, and your new book is about the time you spent with him. It's, it's a transcript with some edits about a road trip you took with him at the, at the very end of his Infinite Jest book tour, the, the book that made him a superstar. Tell us a little bit about what that trip was like for you. Well, it's thrilling. There's this great, um, you got to forgive me for, for quoting Proust this early in the morning, but uh, <laughs> there's a great quote from, from Marcel Proust, and he said that when there's a writer you love, what you really wish is you could have an opinion of theirs on everything in the world. Mm. And suddenly being with David, I could ask him about anything, you know, and he would he would tell me things that were crossing his mind. I remember we were um, we were driving towards the airport in Chicago, and he <laughs> just said, I find that, that I think much more interestingly, uh, interestingly on mornings that I brush my teeth with my left hand rather than in my right. They turned to me and he said, good luck putting that into any kind of uh, understandable context in an article. I mean, he's just very charming and funny and totally just, you know, there's, there's an essay that, that he wrote that won a National Magazine Award about traveling with, uh, with candidate John McCain in 2000, and it ends with these, uh, these great four words, try to stay awake. And that's what he was like. And when you're with him and when you're reading him, staying awake becomes just the most easy thing in the world. Well, he became more than a writer. He became one of our sharpest cultural critics in a way. I mean, one of the things, for instance, you would have expected from a hot young writer who wore a bandana and was on the cover of magazines was sort of a hip affectation. But, Amy, he didn't really have that. In fact, he was against irony. He wrote pieces about how that uh, irony was something that should be avoided, that he was a proponent of sincerity. Yeah, I think um, David was extremely uncomfortable in anything, in any situation where he would be expected to be hip. Or He, he was a very self-conscious person, and what made him uncomfortable about people being ironic or people having expectations um, was that, that he, he felt as if they were skating over what was really going on inside of all of us, which is it's hard to be a human being. It's hard to express exactly what you're feeling and what's important and what you're trying to do. And it's so frustrating when um, it's all about taking shortcuts 
and, and making things slick. Um, he, he really did think a lot about that. And, and I think that's one of the main reasons he disliked parties. He was not terribly socially easy because he was really trying to engage all of the time or he was just trying to get away. We actually have a clip of some of his thoughts on irony. Let's take a listen. You want your art to be hip and seem cool to people, but a great deal of what passes for hip or cool is now highly, highly commercially driven. Some of it, I think, is important art. I think The Simpsons is important art. On the other hand, it's also, in my opinion, relentlessly corrosive to the soul, and everything is parodied and everything is ridiculous. Maybe I'm old, but for my part, I can be steeped in about an hour of it, and then I sort of have to walk away and look at a flower or something. If there's something to be talked about, that thing is this weird conflict between what my girlfriend calls the inner sap, you know, the, the part of us that can really wholeheartedly weep at stuff, and the part of us that has to live in a world of smart, jaded, sophisticated people and wants very much to be taken seriously by those people. It's a clip of your brother, David, talking about irony. And I know you, can, you can't stay the full hour with us, Amy, and we'll, we'll take a break in a little bit and, and get to some callers. So before we get to that, is, is there a story that you could share about your brother that we haven't heard before? Oh, wow. Um, or one that's one of your favorite stories. Um, well, I, I, I think it's... it's okay, I, I remember um, there was a, a New Year's Eve when David and I were both in college, and we'd, we'd come back to Illinois uh, to spend Christmas with our parents, and there it was, New Year's Eve, and we both really, really hated parties, and New Year's Eve parties in particular, and um, we both had awful, disgusting colds and decided to go out to this restaurant called The House of Chin, um, which was a really bad Chinese restaurant in Champaign, Illinois. But what we liked about it was when we were kids, we used to go eat there. And there was a table, um, the, the prime table was under this huge looming plaster Buddha. Hmm. And so we decided, okay, you know, the only thing we can do to salvage this night is go to the House of Chin. We won't be able to taste the food because we have these terrible colds. <laughs> and sit under the Buddha and and just pretend it's any other night. And so we did that, and um, that was probably the first time that David and I really, really talked to each other about what we wanted for the future, um, because you do things like that on New Year's Eve, even if you don't want to buy into it. And... Um, he was really tentatively excited about his future, um, and we talked about what it meant to be becoming adults and um, kept looking at our watches and thinking we better you know, get out of here before all the drunks get on the road. So we went back home, and we, uh, we marshaled in the new year with, with slugs of NyQuil and crawled <laughs> off to bed. <laughs> Um, but that's one of my favorite memories of David. It might not speak much to anybody else, but um, he was he was fantastically good company. And that's one of the things that we've heard that when you were with him, he's his attention seemed to be even though he was 
apparently horribly self-conscious, his attention seemed to be entirely on the person he was with. Is that what you found, David Lipsky? Yeah, and it was, um, and it could be a little bit scary. First, you just had the impression. I remember having this first, this impression when I first walked up to uh, to say hi to him on his lawn in Illinois. Just God, this guy is seeing everything in me, and it's like going through a kind of a emotional version of airport security. And I suddenly had uh, a lot of anxieties about things I was thinking or the things I wanted to talk about. Yeah, it was, it was in that way. It was both. I mean, it was thrilling, but also it, it could be a little unnerving just because you've you've read someone's work and you know just how clear and open their eyes. Along the way on this road trip, David, he talked a lot about his fear of success, I guess, that the whole mechanism of fame and uh, acclaim was going to somehow corrode his interior self. Where do you think that came from? Well, <clears throat> what he said, he had a great phrase for it. He said that he was going to... Um, <laughs> he said that there's good self-consciousness, which you kind of need to work and to... Uh, he said this great thing. He said that he didn't think that writers were more aware than other people. He said that what they had was the luxury to kind of sit and clench their fists and think really hard about the things that most of us only have a chance to think about a little bit, sort of. And that was, for him, I think, good self-consciousness. But the bad self-consciousness was then a second loop of people asking him how he did his work or thinking about that kind of thinking. And he described that kind of self-consciousness and then his wondering if he was enjoying that and enjoying mm you know, people talking about him or not. And he described that kind of self-consciousness as being raped by psychic Bedouin self-consciousness. So he differentiated and he really, I guess, was just thinking about having those layers upon layers of perception as he interacted in life. Yeah, that's what he called um, uh, uh, all the um, all the French curls and crazy circles that, that, that any person's mind kind of goes around in. Amy, we'll let you go in just a minute, but what do you think his legacy will be as a writer and and as a person that's already impacted so many people who've read him? Well, I think um, what, what seems to be developing is that um, David is, is making people think more and realize that um, there is a lot of, of pleasure and enjoyment to be gotten out of actually working at appreciating literature or at art and challenging yourself um, to, to really dig down and, and try to understand what it means to be a person, to understand what it means to be maybe the person standing next to you and what that person might be going through. Um, I think David's legacy, although it's a very strange thing to be talking about um, for me is is simply one of you can live your life and and go about what is normally a very solitary line of work um, which was sitting in a little garage with he had a pickled rattlesnake in a jar that was sort of a good luck charm and and writing but actually in fact there were all these people all over the world who felt as if he was sitting there sort of holding their hand and and telling them that, that either it's going to be okay or you're smarter than you think you are. Um, I think his legacy is, is just simply um, you can live a good life no matter how, how long or how short that life might be. Um, and as long as, as you put forth an effort and, and you try to be 
your own self and you try to be aware and available for the people around you, you've lived a good life. Hmm. There's been a lot written lately about him, as I said, and as you're aware, people continue to be interested, they continue to, to tell you their stories, and that David Foster Wallace has made a difference in their own lives, made them feel less lonely, like you said, is they're kind of holding their hand, encouraging them. And then there's been this uh, book form of his Kenyan commencement address in which he bids a, a graduating class you know, goodbye and some advice on life in the world. And... There has been some, I guess, commentary lately that he would have hated all this fuss. He would have hated to be seen as an inspirational guy. What do you think about that? Is that true? I think I think he would have been disappointed that 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 people couldn't find somebody they thought was more inspirational. <laughs> David didn't really understand um, how how powerful his his words and his thoughts. Were but yeah, he um, very sincere guy. Sentimentality made him very very uncomfortable. Um, I remember being very surprised the first time I read the Kenyan College address because I would I would have expected David just to be a little more um, with with a graduating class, a little more flip and a little more funny, and he really dug in for that. And I remember him talking about it. Um, I just graduated from law school the week before he did that. So he came to my graduation and was saying, oh, I've got to go do this commencement speech. I'm not sure what I'm going to say. And, and within a week, he had come up with that. When you hear that speech now, uh, when you read it, is that something you think that that's really what David was about? Or do you think it was sort of a blip? I think David was about a series of blips, really. <laughs> Um, honestly, I think they most of them were very good blips, very smart blips. Um, I think that, though, was David, uh, newly married David, um, David feeling happy, uh, David being honored to ask to speak to a graduating class. Um, he, he didn't take that lightly. Um, so I, I I think David was moving in the direction of of feeling happier about life in the 21st century and and wanting to to remind uh, kids who are about to become adults um, that that they are simply one person in the human chain and that that what we say to each other and how we interact with each other is pretty much all we've got. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been a real pleasure to have you on with us. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Amy Wallace-Havens, the younger sister of the late writer David Foster Wallace. And we'll go and uh, take our next break right now, our first break, and come back and keep talking with David Lipsky about David Foster Wallace and talking about his new book called Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself, A Road Trip with David Foster Wallace. David Lipsky is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine, and his work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, and The New York Times. Well, what do you think about David Foster Wallace? Have you read his work, and what has it meant to you? What is your take on the Kenyan College Address, if you've read that? It's called This is Water. 
Your thoughts and your comments are welcome at 1-800-642-1234. It's 1-800-642-1234. Or you can send your email to talk at wpr.org. I'm Veronica Rickert, and this is the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. I know that when I was in graduate school, those of us who wrote very much about what used to be called pop culture or advertising or television were really scorned by our older professors who saw that stuff as kind of vapid and banal. And I remember it was a really big source of conflict because in lots of ways we just didn't get what they were saying. I mean, this was our world and our reality the same way, you know, the Romantics world was trees and babbling brooks and, and mountains and blue skies. A clip of the late writer David Foster Wallace. We're talking about him this morning with our guest David Lipsky, who's the author of the new book, Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself, A Road Trip with David Foster Wallace. And we'll take our first phone call here. We have Steve joining us from Madison. Hi, Steve. Yeah, hi. Amy said that her brother was, quote, available to the people around him, unquote. Well, I wonder about the selfish, cowardly suicide. Um, What a wasted, useless death. Not that suicide is bad, but he could have taken some wealthy monsters or war criminal Pentagon Central Intelligence devils with him. But maybe he was so sick of Bush, the Bush America, the, the mass murder, maybe he just couldn't stand it another day. So I can understand it that way. What is David? Uh, David Lipsky, do you want to speak to, you wrote an article piece about that won an award um, about what happened in the last days of David Foster Wallace that led to a suicide. And I think you would, you would assert that it was anything but cowardly. Yeah, D- David had gone through, uh, David had been on um, medication, which is, uh, he had gone into, while he was at Harvard as a, as a graduate student, he had uh, had a kind of uh, sort of suicidal ideation, as the sort of official word. So he'd gone into the Harvard uh, Medical Services, and they'd sent him to a very famous uh, mental hospital called McLean, and there he'd been prescribed a sort of first-generation or second-generation uh, antidepressant called Nordal, which he'd been on for about two decades. And Nordal has a certain number of side effects, um, one of which is kind of dangerously high blood pressure. And in about 2007, he and, uh, he and his wife, his new wife, and his parents were having uh, dinner at a sort of Persian restaurant in Claremont, California, where he was teaching. And something he ate seemed to interact very badly with the Nordal. And so doctors told him to get off it and try something new. And he went through about 18 months of just trying other drugs, and they didn't work, which is something that can happen if you've been very long-term on a chemical agent. And when he tried to get back on the Nurdle, that didn't work either. That's the other thing that can, you know, that, that's the worst thing that can happen when you take a break from, from an antidepressant. And so he had, uh, he lost 70 pounds in a year. Uh, the writer, John Franzen, visited him uh, a few months before he died, and he said that David was still really charming and funny, even at 10% strength, and was making jokes about sort of the jokes you can make when you're really skinny. He said that he'd never before realized, you know, how, uh, how uncomfortable some of the chairs in his house were. <laughs> um, but he was taking electroshock, and he hadn't really slept for half a year. And, you know, at a when, when the Nordal couldn't work, and, and he couldn't sleep, and he couldn't kind of go on at that point, he ended his life. Um, so it, one, of, one of the really important things that I wanted to talk about in the book was that uh, I was very afraid. You know, suicide is one of those events which is kind of so strong it can kind of reach back and change the way you think about the beginning of someone's life. 
And so one of the things I really wanted to talk about in the book was that it wasn't it wasn't a reflection kind of of who he was. It was just a medical thing that happened to him because uh, a fear I had as a great fan of his work was that people would only see his work as kind of uh, rumors of, of his future suicide. And it's not that. I mean, his work is just, again, this incredible celebration and examination of what it means to be a human being. Let's take another phone call here. We have Herman with us from Madison. Hi, Herman. Hello. Hi, go ahead. Hello. Yes, we're here. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you now, yes. Okay, great. I, I, my question concerning Mr. Foster is, um, in, in, uh, in his mind, what, what was the concept he had as to what make you who you are? And uh, in, in that connection, how does that uh, touch his spiritual life, if he had, if he had any? Uh, so I'm going to turn off the, uh, and listen to the radio now. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks Thank for the call. An interesting question from Herman about, I guess, the spiritual practice of, of David Foster Wallace, too. Yeah, that was a question in talking to David that I think was really paramount to him, which is the question, he thought that the point of life was finding out exactly who you are. Um, he, did a, he did a great essay uh, in his second collection of essays, a book called Consider the Lobster, which is great, and which I urge uh, listeners to pick up because it's incredibly smart and funny. And he said that uh, that Kafka, what, what you see from reading Kafka is that the terrible journey to try to find a home is, in fact, our home, and the, which also suggests that, that, that trying to discover who we actually are is, in fact, who we are. That's actually kind of mm. his talking about that is one of the reasons that I gave the book the title that it has. He just said, look, you know, you also are going to, you know, your parents can try to steer you in one direction, or you can hope you're going to go in another direction. But, you know, although, of course, you will end up becoming who you are, you'll end up becoming yourself. Um, and then I think that uh, I think that those questions and what we, uh, what, 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 what we owe to our spiritual selves, you know, uh, what, what we owe to the way we connect with other people and what we owe to the people that we live with, you know, is a question. It's a question that, that kind of every paragraph of his asks. One thing that I'm curious about that gets touched on but never really addressed is his spiritual belief system. He, I think in this, in your book, denies being in AA. He says he visited AA for research, and um, if you're in AA, you have to believe in some kind of higher power. But when you listen to some of the, the Kenyan address, for instance, you do get the sense of someone who's operating from the framework of some kind of morality system. Do you have any idea where he was coming from on that? Well, he has that great quote in the Kenyan thing. He said that in the, in the trenches of adult life, there really are no atheists, and you're going to believe in something, you know, be it Christ, be it, be it, uh, be it Buddha, be it Muhammad, you know, be it God. And uh, his, his sense was that to, not, to, to try to avoid thinking about that was to kind of shy away from one of the, one of the responsibilities you have as a person. So we don't really know what his, his practice was, but he's someone who thought about faith. Um, yeah, he, um, you know, uh, my sense is that he, um, my sense is that, uh, my sense is just from reading Infinite Jest deals a good deal with, uh, with that question of, you know, accepting a higher power and trying to, uh, and trying to square yourself with that. And I imagine just from reading that book that that was a question that, that, that followed him through his life as well. Well, we have to head into our second break soon, but could you uh, leave us with a story from your road trip that you remember, a scene from the book? Oh, 
uh, you know, for, for me, often what I think about, uh, often what I think about are, are times when he was just very, very funny. I mean, we were in a, we were at Mall of America, which was very hard for us to get to Minneapolis because we got snowed in in Illinois, so we had to dash up in the car to Chicago and and grab a flight. And then we were in, we were at Mall of America, and we were just looking at the stores, and there was some kind of terrible chain restaurant uh, named after a very famous wrestler. Um, and it's called Hulk Hogan's Pasta Mania. <laughs> and he turned to me and said, yes, because uh, when I think pasta, I think Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just incredibly, incredibly funny. We were, we were in an NPR station in Minneapolis. I mean, just this sort of an example of, uh, of how quick his brain was. And uh, this was in the early days of using using computers to uh, to do sound stuff. And the engineer came out and said, uh, I hope I hope it's okay. We're going to be recording digitally. And David said, so only yes and no answers, which is just an amazing joke to come up with off the cuff. I know. I read that one, and I it took me – I had to sit there and stare blankly for about 30 seconds before I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> and for him, it was just a blurt. I mean, that's – to be around uh, to be around a mind that quick was just a great thing, and it's it's one of the things that I hope you know other readers find in the book. Well, let's take our second break right now, and then we'll come back and continue talking this morning, this hour, with David Lipsky, who's the author of Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself, A Road Trip with David Foster Wallace. And we welcome your phone calls this morning and your emails. We'd love to hear about what you think. If you've read the Kenyan College Address, This Is Water, what did you take away from that? And what do you like most about... David Foster Wallace's writing. If you're a writer, did it leave you with any sort of impressions and uh, point you in any particular direction, maybe, in your own writing? Our email is talk at wpr.org, and you can ring us up at 1-800-642-1234. It's 1-800-642-1234. I'm Veronica Rickert, and this is the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. Veronica Rickard, back with you here on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio, talking this morning with David Lipsky, who is the author of Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself, A Road Trip with David Foster Wallace. David Lipsky is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine, and his work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, and on NPR's All Things Considered. And we have an email here from Aaron in Madison who writes, I'm a huge David Foster Wallace fan. I'm wondering about his thoughts on his own writing. Did he know the impact he was having on other people? And did he think his thoughts were more interesting or insightful than others? Or was that surprising for him to learn? What do you think, David? He said a great thing. He said that uh, we, we, were in a, we were in a pizza restaurant and, um, and he, he was looking at the people around and he said that, that for him to think for a second that his thoughts were more cogent or interesting than anyone else's in the in the restaurant would, would be the worst thing to the worst thing for a writer because it would mean that he wasn't having a conversation with the reader and that that was of course the thing that he thought writing could do best was have those kinds of brain conversations um, and he said that what the what the writer's job really is as he thought was just was not to be smarter but but to kind of wake the reader up to stuff that the readers noticed all along and I thought that was just such a such a smart way to go about it and such a kind of smart way to phrase it. And what about his own his own writing? Did he struggle with self esteem as a lot of writers do, or did he think that you know, he was doing pretty well for himself? Uh, he said this, he said another great thing, and I, I um 
you know, I teach at NYU, and when I'm kind of talking to the grad students, I, I always say this thing, and, and in the period between when I traveled around with David and when, when we published the book, this was the kind of thing that I would always think to myself when I was having a terrible time, if it was, you know, two in the morning and I had a deadline at seven or eight, you know, and six hours to go sort of feeling. Um, he said that, you know, we were, we were driving around, we were coming back from the airport and coming back from Minneapolis, and he just said, look, I know I'm not the smartest writer going. You know, um, and I know I can't be, you know, in a conversation, I know I can't be that smart, you know, what, 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 when I'm around other people and, and, uh, and I'm really self-conscious and I get confused. Mm. But I work really, really hard. And if you give me 24 hours alone in a room, then I can be really, really smart. Hmm. Your publisher, your publicist, I should say, sent us a clip from one of the tapes, I gather, from your road trip with him. And it's a great clip where he talks about how he, he's figured out in life that he needs to figure out what makes him happy, or to put another way, what to live for. And writing is one of those things. And he says he's incredibly lucky to do it. And he's looked at the alternatives and and writing is a pretty good one to keep you going. Was writing really uh, just a force of of will for him? You know, he, um, I think like anyone else, he had times when he worked really well, and he had times when he thought he was working less well. He said that, um, at the time, he said that, that only five or six things while he was working, what, what he wanted to have happen when he was writing was have, the, was have the prose come alive, was to have the thing come alive for him, he said. And that had happened uh, for him five or six times in his writing life up until the time of Infinite Jest. And Infinite Jest was the time when it had happened, you know, at that period of his life the most for him. And he said this, he said another kind of great thing. He said that um, up until Infinite Jest, almost all the things he'd written, he'd written in that way that you... Uh, that you write a paper late. He said, you know, that defense mechanism, you know, you write the paper just the night before, and if it doesn't get a great grade, you know, you, you can tell yourself it could have been a lot better. And he said, this thing, this thing I did as an experiment. You know, I was going to try to build some muscles in my guts. I was going to try to write the best I possibly could, and that this thing is the best I could possibly be, do between 1992 and 1995. And he said that, you know, you'd think that would make you more nervous, actually, about how people would read it. But he said that it made him less nervous because he, he knew he'd done his best. And he said, the way I feel now is, okay, I'm a writer now. Hmm. Well, and in that same vein, we have an email here from Mark in Middleton, who wants to know what kind of advice did he give to aspiring writers? I'm sure he was inundated with questions from people who wanted to be writers, too. What does he think the key to great writing is? Do you have a handle on that one? Well, yeah, he just thought that the key to, the key to great writing, I mean, he, he talks about it a lot in the book. He says that um, it's just, he said that, that, that our... You know, the, the particularly now, and he saw the and he he saw how the web was. He, it's it's actually kind of thrilling it to go back and check it in the book. He saw just the shape that the web was going to be, which was that we were going to it was good, life was going to be it was going to become much more easy for us to be alone uh, with images on a screen made for people <laughs> made by people who don't love us but want our money. <laughs> and he said that uh, and that work was going to be. And this is a phrase that just is totally stuck in my head. He said that. Uh, and work was going to just be being on one side or the other of an electronic data transfer. Um, but he said that was also for writers. That was that was a writer's gift because it's become it's become so hard for for two brains to talk to each other or to have that kind of communication between two souls, between two personalities, two consciousnesses. And really, only writing could make that leap between two people. And so he thought that that, that, that writing focusing on that, focusing on making. You know, making what is internal to us, you know, finding the, finding the common things that, that could speak from, from one brain to another, 
that that was where writing was going to have to go, and that's what he was hoping his own writing could do. And it sounds like, you know, according to Amy and the response, that that's what people have responded to. They they felt as though he was a kind of friend, almost in their head, company in your head where you need it the most, where you're the most alone. Yeah, it's very... It is, I think that's one of the reasons why people were so upset. People who didn't know him personally uh, were so upset when he died because you had the sense that somehow there was, you know, it's, <laughs> in a way it's like having a superhero out there, right? It's like somewhere out there there was someone who could make sense of the world that we pushed through. You know, another thing he said about his work was that in any given day, you know, he had 500,000 different bits of information coming at him, you know, but, from from billboards, from 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 TV, from the computer screen, and your job in the day was to push through that somehow and find the twenty five that actually matter. And he also he could do that. He could he could both express that confusion, express the lightness and intelligence of it, express what those twenty five things are. And it was it was the it was the ability I think both to both to capture how odd it feels to have all that data coming at you, and then to also have this kind of bright thing inside there that is you, right? The, the ability he had to actually express that is one of the things that a lot of readers, and I as a reader, really treasured in his work, and so I, I know that a lot of people felt they weren't going to have that anymore because he was the writer who was doing it best, and that is, he was right, that is one of the things that we desperately turn to really good writing for. But he did spawn a whole bunch of, of spin-off writers, a generation of spin-off writers who started to write a bit like him, who used the references and, and pop culture and tried to kind of take it all in in almost a, a stream of consciousness way. Yeah, that's why the that that's in a way yeah, that's that's kinda of how you know someone really good has come along, right? I mean when when Salinger first started publishing in the fifties, he changed the way writing was being done then. And when Hemingway first started publishing in the twenties he did that, too. And it's, it's one of those nice things that someone's saying, look, we've all been trying to find the way everyone's brain sounds now, and here's the way it does sound, and, and here's a way to express it, and here's a way to express it in a way that also does what writing has to do, which is kind of wake you up and be more, somehow be more interesting than the things around you. And, of course, writers now are working at a time when, the, as David was aware, too, and the things around us, you know, have become commercially amazingly more interesting. So I think when David when David found that way of writing about all our experiences, I think it was thrilling for readers, and then it was thrilling for other writers because it was like someone finding a path through a very complicated, confusing, and deep forest. Well, in that same vein, we have um, an email from Melissa here in Madison who writes that there's a website called I Write Like, which tells you what famous writer you write like. And she says she entered some of her own work, and it said David Foster Wallace. And she ends by writing, I wish. She should phone one of the um, uh, one of the many hardworking and intelligent literary agents in New York and, uh, and, and get on the stack. Well, I want to talk about... Um, some of his his nonfiction writing, because Infinite Jest was a really challenging book. He himself in your book writes that it probably takes you, if you're a good reader, two months to read Infinite Jest. But tons of people read his nonfiction. And I think probably the most famous one is a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, which was his account of a cruise ship that he uh, he went on for Harper's Magazine. Can you tell us something about his nonfiction and that one in particular? Sure. And, and, and I'll encourage uh, listeners if you want to read that piece, um, I mean, David touched kind of everyone 
I mean, it's strange when someone kind of comes through like that. His editor at uh, at Harper's actually described him as a you know a once in a once in a once in a century talent, and said he was like a comet kind of plowing through at ground level. Um, and so Harper's, out of kind of real love and respect for David, has put all the stuff he wrote for the magazine on their website for free. So if you go to harpers.org and then search search harpers.org and in memoriam David Foster Wallace. Um, you'll find that that cruise ship piece there in Harper's. It was published as shipping out, and it's just if you want to start reading him, it is just the best way to start to start with his prose. Um, you know, when when I when I teach him, uh, what I say is that's probably the most fun piece of writing. You know, it's about a hundred pages in the book. But it's been published in the last you know fifteen years. I mean, it's incredibly sharp and awake and fun, um, and it's just about and, and it's really an unpromising topic, right? He's he's spending one week on a cruise ship, and it's everything he sees, but it's his anxieties about how his cabin's being cleaned, and uh, it's him watching himself move from room service being something he's embarrassed about to him, you know, tapping his feet and looking at his watch and saying, where's the damn room service card already? <laughs> but, and it's incredibly human, and it's him, and there's this great moment sort of in the middle when he's really loving luxury on his boat, uh, on, the, um, uh, on a boat called the Zenish, and he looks over there at port, and there's an even bigger, better boat, and his desire for luxury from being on this boat at that point for about four or five days is so extreme that he thought, he starts imagining how much better it would be to be on the other boat, which to him is kind of is, is kind of a way of finding out that there's no limit to how much ease kind of the soul will want and kind of how dangerous that can be. Um, but the piece is so alive and awake and, and fun that, that Colin Harrison, the man who described David as a comet, what he said when the piece came in is that it was very clear to us that we had literary cocaine on our hands. <laughs> I like that clip. Uh, well, let's hear a little bit. We have him talking about just what you're discussing here. This is um, something that he, an interview he did um, about that cruise ship piece. A lot of really ecstatic pleasures are linked, interestingly, sort of with that. I guess my point is right, right now, and I think the next 15 or 20 years are going to be a very scary and, and sort of very exciting time when we have to sort of reevaluate our relationship to fun and pleasure and entertainment because it's going to get so good and so high pressure that we're going to have to forge some kind of, of attitude toward it that lets us live. The first leading cause of death among teenagers is suicide. Drug addiction, uh, sexual addiction, gambling addiction in this country is epidemic. The divorce rate is sky high. I mean, people in this country are lost and wandering around and looking to give themselves away to something that will maybe love them back as much as they love it. I know that in certain moods, um, when I'm tired or when I'm in some sort of pain, I want kind of infantile pleasures. I want to sit and receive pleasure without having to give anything or do anything. The question, I think, is, is, is sort of an individual one, is that what level of pain do we need to reach before we begin, begin to be willing to undertake the work of that reevaluation? That's David Foster Wallace talking a bit about um, the same vein of, of the cruise ship, about the pampering and the luxury and, uh, I guess, the entertainment factor of everyday life. And we're getting to the end of the hour here. So let's take another uh, email here from Ron in Waukesha, who writes that, could this road trip work with another writer? It seems like Wallace is so infinitely quotable and candid in a way that I'm not sure would work with other people. Is there something about him that makes this conceit of a road trip just work? Well, I think that's a great thing. No, he's, I don't think it could really work that, that way because he's just, as his sister was saying uh, before, like his, his, 
prose is very close to the way he experienced the world and then to the way he he speaks and so one of the um one of the things that I hope the book lets readers do is get the chance to kind of spend that time with with uh, David Foster Wallace himself you know and he is just it's only because he is so incredibly awake and incredibly funny and because his eye is is interested in so many things and and his you know, his words are able to express the things he's interested in so intelligently and so comically that the book works. I mean, when uh, when I read the when I read the record of the week we'd spent, I thought, look, there's there's kind of no better way to tell people what David was like than just letting them take this trip themselves. Did you stay in touch with him after this uh, road trip happened? Because I know that the two of you, you really seem to connect on a personal level. I mean, there was this kind of dance going on about uh, interviewer and subject. But below that, it seemed as though there were two writers who were trying to connect. Yeah, he was great. He was great to be around. Um, no, we never spoke again. Um, you know, I went home, and, uh, you know, I it's one of those things when you realize just how much you want to keep a foot in someone else's world. Um, about a week or two after I came back, this really big package came from what I recognized as his address in Illinois. And I opened it up, and I thought maybe it would be some great books or some thoughts he'd had. And it was just my shoe, my giant loafer, which I had left in his house. <laughs> <laughs> he sent me a note on Chicago Bear Stationery with a smiley face, and he just wrote yours, I presume. <laughs> um, but that was that was the last I heard from him. I, um, I got assigned to a different story, more or less right when I came back, and that story took about six months. It was a story, comically enough, about drug addiction, about heroin addicts in Seattle. And when I came back, it was too late to do the piece. Um, so we never did it, and that was just very embarrassing to me um, because he really, it was very clear that uh, he was making a real effort to tell what his life had been like. And, you know, he, we, we were staying up very late at night and he was, he's doing this great thing in the second half of the book of just turning the tape on and off. It's kind of like watching someone do drafts uh, on a computer. He's turning the tape on and off while he's thinking about exactly the phrasing he wants to use and then turning it back on when he has it. I mean, he really was trying. And for me to know that there wasn't going to be a piece was just Tremendously, tremendously embarrassing. So, no, we never spoke again. It's um, it's been a long time, and he's so much has happened. Um, but what have you what have you kept from that road trip internally? And I should tell you, we've only got about thirty seconds left. Just a sense of what he was like, and the sense of uh, the sense of what a great writer is like. And there's that there's that feeling that we have that that it comes easy for people who we really admire and respect. In the same way that, that and I think David's writing is about this, that, that we assume and hope that being a person, being a human being, will come easy, too. And one of the really great things for me was, was seeing that even for a, a person who is a kind of person you respect more than anybody, none of those things come easy, and it's a struggle for everyone. And that, that is, aside from just the great pleasure of being around him, that's the thing that I, that I really think about a lot when I think about the, the week we spent in the car. Well, thank you so much for keeping the tapes and for publishing this book. It's it's wonderful to read. Thank you very much. It's been great being on the show. Thanks for having both of us on. David Lipsky is the author of Although You, Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself. This is the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio.